Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, May 4th edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Companies flock to Biden's climate tax breaks, driving up cost. By Jim Tankersley and Brad Plumer. President Biden's signature climate law appears to be encouraging more investment in American manufacturing than initially expected, powering what's expected to be a surge in new factory jobs and domestic clean energy technologies according to independent forecasters. If the boom in new battery factories, wind and solar farms, electric vehicle, plants, and other investments is sustained, the law could prove even more effective than administration officials had hoped at reducing the fossil fuel emissions that are dangerously heating the planet. But all that new economic activity centered around green technology is also driving up costs for taxpayers who are subsidizing the investments. When Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act last August, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the law's climate and clean energy tax credits would cost roughly $391 billion between 2022 and 2031. But the Budget Office's updated score, based on estimates from the Joint Committee on Taxation, found that the clean energy tax breaks would cost at least $180 billion more than originally forecast over that time period. Other experts in investment banks have estimated that the law's energy provisions could end up costing as much as $1.2 trillion over the next decade. In just eight months since Mr. Biden signed the bill, companies have announced plans to invest at least $150 billion in clean energy projects, including at least 46 new or expanded large-scale factories, making everything from wind turbine towers to electric vehicle batteries. Some companies planned their projects before the climate law passed and would have built them regardless, but others have cited the law as a catalyst, such as Hanwha Qcells, a South Korean solar company, which in January announced that it would build a $2.5 billion manufacturing complex in Georgia. Investment is moving forward five times faster than ever before, said Jason Grumet, the chief executive of the American Clean Power Association, a renewable energy trade group. The early signs are really encouraging, he said. The growth spurt in green energy is happening as other segments of manufacturing appear to be cooling off. While the climate law was a top priority of the Biden administration and was passed without a single Republican vote, much of the money has so far flowed to red states, particularly in the Southwest, the South, and Midwest, where land is abundant, labor is generally not unionized, and costs are relatively low. One analysis by Climate Power, an advocacy group, found that out of 191 clean energy projects announced since the bill's passage, more than half have been in congressional districts held by Republicans, who have often welcomed the investment while criticizing the law. The rush to cash in on the credits has delighted administration officials, environmental activists, and clean energy industry groups, who say it is catalyzing a rapid transition from an economy rooted in burning coal, gas, and oil to one that runs on renewable sources such as wind and solar power. But the rising cost estimates have fueled an angry response from Senator Joe Manchin III, Democrat of West Virginia, who cast the vote that was crucial to the law's passage. Mr. Manchin now faces a potentially difficult re-election campaign that could pit him against Governor Jim Justice, a Republican who announced last week he will run for the Senate in 2024. West Virginia has increasingly shifted to the right. Voters backed Donald J. Trump over Mr. Biden by 39 points in 2020. Mr. Manchin has threatened to vote to repeal the law if administration officials do not take steps that would reduce its costs. 
Mr. Justice, whose family owns several coal mines and processing plants, has called Mr. Manchin's vote to pass the Inflation Reduction Act a, quote, real, real screw-up. The price of the tax credits has also become a focal point in the ongoing standoff between House Republicans and Mr. Biden over raising the nation's borrowing limit and avoiding an economically catastrophic default. The bill Republicans passed last week to lift the limit would repeal most of the climate tax credits from the Inflation Reduction Act, which the Budget Office said would save more than $500 billion over the next decade. Republicans say the tax credits have distorted markets by steering investment to preferred green technologies. Democrats point to the U.S. tax code that has for decades provided tax incentives for the fossil fuel industry worth an estimated $10 billion to $50 billion per year. Administration officials say that Republicans who want to repeal the clean energy tax credits would jeopardize the local economy in their own districts. We're seeing tens of thousands of jobs being created across the country as a result of this law in just a matter of months. We expect to see even more, said Christina Costa, Mr. Biden's deputy for clean energy implementation and innovation. The Republican proposal would roll all of that back. Architects of the law say it will reinvigorate American manufacturing in a global competition to produce advanced energy technologies and, more important, speed the fight against climate change. It will be a net job creator for sure, said Brian Deese, Mr. Biden's former National Economic Council director, who stepped down in February. But the larger economic benefit, he said, would be rapid decarbonization of the American economy on a low-cost instead of high-cost path. The new climate law offers a range of hefty tax breaks for both individuals and businesses. Consumers can get tax credits by buying certain electric vehicles, electric stoves, and electric heat pumps, among other goods. Utilities can earn credits by generating electricity from wind or solar farms. And businesses are eligible for tax incentives if they manufacture batteries or solar panels in the United States. Those tax credits are uncapped, which means that theoretically there is no limit to how many companies and households can ultimately claim them. Christine McDaniel, a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, tallied all the recent announcements for U.S. battery manufacturing and estimated that if they all claimed a new manufacturing tax break, the cost would range from $43.7 billion to $196.5 billion between now and 2032. Not the $30.6 billion that the Congressional Budget Office initially predicted for that one break alone. Whether or not you agree with the policy goals here, I do think we need to be honest about how much this is going to cost, Ms. McDaniel said because the budget is only so big, and there are always going to be trade-offs to spending. One recent academic paper presented at the Brookings Institution used detailed energy modeling to estimate that the law's climate provisions could cost anywhere from $240 billion to $1.2 trillion over the next decade, and potentially hundreds of billions of dollars past 2031. What you're seeing is a large amount of uncertainty in how much clean energy is actually going to be deployed, said John Bistline, program manager at the Electric Power Research Institute and an author of that paper. Consider, for instance, the provision in the bill that provides a $7,500 tax credit for consumers to buy electric vehicles. In theory, the full tax credit is available only to electric cars that are assembled in North America and get most of their battery components and critical minerals from either the United States or trade allies. 
but that is a moving target as automakers and battery manufacturers open new factories in the United States, more cars would qualify. At the same time, the Treasury Department has interpreted certain language in the tax rules in ways that could expand eligibility for certain cars, drawing criticism from Mr. Manchin, who has pushed for more restrictive rules. When the law originally passed, I didn't think any vehicles would qualify for the full credit right off the bat, said Nick Negro, founder of Atlas Public Policy, an electric vehicle research group. But there are already at least 10 that do, and we're seeing that automakers can be very creative in setting up their supply chains when they have incentive to do so. One analysis from Goldman Sachs suggested that electric vehicle provision alone could cost $379 billion more over the next decade than the budget office estimated. On the flip side, it is also possible that the law ends up being far less potent than many experts are now assuming. Even with tax credits, many car buyers might be reluctant to purchase electric vehicles because of the lack of reliable charging stations. Developers of large-scale solar and wind farms could face increasing opposition in communities where they want to build. And while companies have announced plans of more than $150 billion in clean energy projects so far, some of those investments depend on the Treasury Department to enact favorable rules around certain tax provisions that have yet to be clarified, Mr. Grume said. Because of all those variables, the law's true price tag may not be known for years. So much depends on questions like, can the permitting process for clean energy projects become easier to navigate? Will there be enough skilled workers and critical minerals available? Said Melissa Lott, research director for the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. The law is almost certainly going to move the needle on emissions, but the degree to which it does so is still unclear. History and Civics Test Scores Are Dropping by Sarah Mervash National test scores released on Wednesday showed a marked drop in students' knowledge of U.S. history and a modest decline in civics, a sign of the pandemic's alarming reach damaging student performance in nearly every academic area. The pandemic plunge in U.S. history accelerated a downward trend that began nearly a decade ago, hitting this recent low at a time when the subject itself has become increasingly politically divisive. A growing number of students are falling below even the basic standards set out on the National Assessment of Educational Progress a rigorous national exam administered by the Department of Education. About 40% of 8th graders scored below basic in U.S. history last year, compared with 34% in 2018 and 29% in 2014. Just 13% of 8th graders were considered proficient, demonstrating competency over challenging subject matter, down from 18% nearly a decade ago. Questions ranged from the simple, such as knowing that factory conditions in the 1800s were dangerous, with long days and low pay, to the complex. For example, only 6% of students could explain in their own words how two ideas from the Constitution were reflected in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The dip in civics performance was smaller but notable. It was the first decline since the test began being administered in the late 1990s. About 22% of students were proficient, down from 24% in 2018. President Biden's education secretary, Miguel A. Cardona, seized on the results, admonishing politicians for trying to limit instruction in history, often on topics of race, a trend that has played out in dozens of states, typically Republican-controlled. Now is not the time, he said, adding that banning history books and censoring educators from teaching these important subjects does our students a disservice and will move America in the wrong direction. The results from a national sample of about 8,000 8th graders in each subject 
track with scores in math and reading, which also decreased during the pandemic. Across subjects, declines were often driven by the lowest performing students, a trend that has federal officials so concerned that they are now considering rewriting test questions to zero in on what these students are missing. In history, it's possible that reduced reading comprehension played a role in student performance. But experts also pointed to a continuing de-emphasis on social studies instruction. Since the implementation of No Child Left Behind in the early 2000s, and its update during the Obama administration, federal policy has required states to test students in reading and math. Periodic testing is also required for science. No such mandate exists for social studies. Many state policies around testing and accountability also do not include social studies. While some experts have criticized standardized tests as limited in effectiveness and detrimental to students, most generally agree. What is tested drives what is taught. Instructional time for social studies declined after the implementation of No Child Left Behind, a pattern that was amplified during the pandemic when schools had to triage academic losses, resulting in more of a focus on reading and math. It doesn't bode well for the future of this country and for the future of democracy if we don't start doing more instruction in social studies, said Kristen Dutcher-Mann, a history professor at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. She helps train middle and high school social studies teachers. At one point, she said, older elementary school students in her community received an hour of social studies each day. Now, she said, they will be lucky if they get 30 minutes for social studies twice a week. The National Council for Social Studies recommends a minimum of 45 minutes of daily instruction in elementary school, and a similar equivalent in middle and high school. Instruction has changed, too. Students spend far less time memorizing state capitals or the preamble to the Constitution, information they could easily Google, and instead focus more on key skills, like distinguishing between primary and secondary source documents. That's not necessarily a bad thing, Dr. Dutcherman said. Students need to be taught to think critically. But she said that emphasis can contribute to a troubling lack of background knowledge. Even in her college classes, she said, she has noticed a rapid and very significant decline in what students know about history and geography, like the fact that Africa is a continent, not a country. A base knowledge in history and civics is critical for students to become engaged, informed citizens, particularly amid misinformation on social media platforms said Kai Kwashami Ginsberg, director of Tufts University Circle Center, an organization founded on youth civic engagement. She cited a recent TikTok campaign against an Alaska oil project, which resulted in a misguided petition urging President Biden not to sell Alaska. You need some basics to understand what's even verifiable. Does it even jibe loosely with what I've learned? She said, noting that the president does not have executive power to sell a state. With American trust in institutions falling to new lows, but with young voter turnout and political engagement up, many see this as a pivotal moment for re-emphasizing history and civics education. Sheila Edwards, a middle school history teacher in Los Angeles, said after recent school shootings, students had inundated her with detailed questions about the Second Amendment. On the day of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, she had to come up with a new homework assignment to address her students' interest in the news. Kids seem to be more interested in history and civics than ever before, she said. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. RSV Vaccine Approved for Older Adults by Christina Jewett. 
The Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday approved GSK's vaccine for the Respiratory Sinitial Virus, or RSV, for adults who are 60 and older, the company said. The vaccine, to be sold as RxV, appears to be the first in the world approved for sale to protect older adults from RSV, a potentially fatal respiratory illness. The FDA estimates that RSV is associated with 6,000 to 10,000 deaths each year in adults 65 and older, and at least 60,000 hospitalizations in that age group. It is a leading killer of children worldwide. This winter, the RSV contributed to the triple-demic, also involving flu and COVID cases, that swamped children's hospitals and some ICU wards. Announcing the approval, Dr. Peter Marks, the agency's vaccine division chief, said, Older adults, in particular those with underlying health conditions, such as heart or lung disease or weakened immune systems, are at high risk for severe disease caused by RSV. On March 1st, an FDI advisory panel reviewed data from trials for two RSV vaccines aimed at older adults, one from GSK and one from Pfizer. The panel recommended that the agency approve both. The GSK vaccine was nearly 83% effective in preventing lower respiratory tract illness in adults 60 and older in a study of about 25,000 patients, according to data published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The virus can lead to pneumonia, which is far more worrisome for the elderly. Pfizer's RSV vaccine for older adults is also expected to receive FDA approval this month. In a large study of that shot, it was found to be nearly 67% effective in preventing RSV-related illness. The Pfizer and GSK vaccines were even more effective in treating older and sicker patients. The advisors did learn of some rare side effects from the vaccine trials. In the days after the shots were given, two recipients of the Pfizer vaccine and one recipient of the GSK shot developed cases of Guillain-Barre, a condition where the immune system attacks the nervous system, according to data presented to the FDA panel. Once the shots become available to the public, the agency said it would require GSK to monitor the incidence of that condition and another rare condition possibly related to the shot. Moderna is also developing an RSV vaccine for this age group and said it expects authorization in the first half of this year. A trial of 37,000 older adults showed 82% efficacy of its shot, the company said, with no safety concerns identified, though analysis were continuing. AstraZeneca and Sanofi are seeking FDA approval of a monoclonal antibody treatment to protect infants and toddlers up to two years old from RSV infections. Findings of a major study showed the therapy reduced confirmed illnesses by 75% after one shot, according to AstraZeneca. Pfizer has applied for a separate approval of an RSV vaccine to be given in the later stages of pregnancy to protect young infants. It will still be months before the adult vaccine is publicly available in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is expected to follow the FDA's approval, most likely issuing its recommendation in June. GSK says its vaccine would then be available in the fall at U.S. pharmacies, clinics, and other healthcare settings. GSK executives have said that supplies of the vaccine, which is manufactured mainly at a plant in Belgium, should be readily available. For Medicare patients with Part D drug coverage, there would be no out-of-pocket expense, a GSK spokeswoman said. But the company has not released a price, although insurers typically cover much of the cost of many vaccines. Last week, the European Medicines Agency recommended approval of GSK's vaccine for adults 60 and older, 
The company said it hoped the shots would also be approved later for use in Japan and China. For King Charles, Coronation Day is a step on a tightrope walk. By Mark Landler, reporting from London. It's good to be the king, but it's not without its traps, as King Charles III learned last weekend when the organizers of his coronation invited millions of Britons to pledge an oath of homage to the monarch during the ceremony on Saturday. A spectacular misjudgment, said Graham Smith, whose group Republic wants to abolish the monarchy. Discordant and potentially tone-deaf, posted Anne Whitelock, an expert on the monarchy at City University of London. More like the stuff of a Stalinist People's Republic, wrote the columnist Mick Hume. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the Most Reverend Justin Welby, who will preside over the service, insisted that the oath would be purely voluntary. It was meant as a democratizing gesture. At Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, only members of the hereditary aristocracy swore allegiance. Such are the problems vexing Charles as he prepares for his coronation, Britain's first in 70 years. In the seven months since he ascended the throne, royal watchers say, the new king has worked to make the monarchy more accessible, forward-looking, and inclusive. Yet the hoary rituals of the coronation are a reminder of how, in a secular, multi-ethnic, digital-age society, the crown is fundamentally an anachronism. As Buckingham Palace dusts off its royal relics, gleaming swords and scepters, a bejeweled orb, and a gold stagecoach, Charles, 74, is walking a tightrope between tradition and modernity. People who know him say he knows he must adapt the institution to a society that has not necessarily turned against the idea of a king, but finds the trappings of royalty increasingly irrelevant. His partner in this project is his 40-year-old son and heir, Prince William. The two have grown close after the painful rift between them and Charles' younger son, Prince Harry, according to those who know them. They form the nucleus of a shrunken royal family, one that its defenders say will make fewer demands on Britain's public purse. Under Charles and William, they're going to work even harder to be relevant, said Patty Harverson, who served as communication secretary to Charles from 2003 to 2014. He will want to manage spending more carefully and produce a more cost-efficient monarchy. He's got a license to change things, but it will be gradual. Critics warn that public attitudes are changing faster than the monarchy. In a recent poll by the market research firm YouGov, 58% of people said Britain should continue to have a king, while 26% said it should have an elected head of state. But among those aged 18 to 24, fewer than a third favored keeping it. They're completely underestimating the change in the public mood, said Catherine Mayer, who wrote a 2015 biography, Charles, the Heart of a King. What we are witnessing is not the end of the monarchy, she continued. What we are witnessing is the end of the popular monarchy. Part of the problem is Charles himself. He has evolved in a relentlessly documented life, from a gawky youth to a self-assured elder statesman. But he remains, in Ms. Mayer's words, a Marmite figure, either loved or hated, much like the salty brown English spread that is marketed as the ultimate acquired taste. That sets him apart from Queen Elizabeth who was revered as a unifying figure, serenely operating above politics, a timeless counterweight to the daily upheavals of Britain's parliamentary democracy. In his brief reign, Charles has already found himself drawn messily into politics. In February, he welcomed the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to Windsor Castle just hours after she signed an agreement with Prime Minister 
Rishi Sunak to settle a trade dispute in Northern Ireland. Opponents of the deal said the king had allowed himself to be exploited by the government. Downing Street labeled it the Windsor Framework, which some said improperly put the king's imprature on the agreement, since Windsor is not only one of the king's homes, but his family name. Last fall, days after he ascended the throne, Charles reluctantly yielded to advice from Mr. Sunak's predecessor, Liz Truss, not to attend the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt, despite his long-standing commitment to climate and environmental issues. These episodes capture the challenge Charles will face as he adjusts to the non-political life of a monarch. He is fervently committed to causes from organic farming to traditional architecture. He reads voraciously, aides say, and approaches public debates with the instincts of a contrarian. A former aide, Mark Boland, once described him as a dissident working against the prevailing political consensus. Experts on the monarchy predicted Charles would find other ways to channel his activism. Some predicted he would promote fine arts, classical music, and the works of Shakespeare are particular passions, they said, more than the queen, whose outside interests ran mainly to breeding racehorses. He takes a view even more strongly than the queen, that the monarchy has to be shown to be useful, said Vernon Bogdanor, an authority on the constitutional monarchy. He will use his soft power to a great extent. Charles's diplomatic outreach got off to an awkward start when the king played host at a state banquet for President Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa, one of the Commonwealth nations. A week later, Mr. Ramaphosa faced an impeachment vote on charges of money laundering, which he survived. But the king's first foreign trip, a three-day visit to Germany, with the Queen Consort Camilla, won rapturous headlines. Speaking to the parliament in Berlin, Charles, who has German forebears, switched seamlessly from English to German as he stressed the solidarity between Britain and Germany in defending Ukraine from Russia. His choice of Europe was no accident. It was clearly intended, in the wake of Britain's exit from the European Union, to build on a diplomatic rapprochement between Mr. Sunak and President Emmanuel Macron. Visiting Germany in 2020, Charles said, no country is really an island, the closest he ever came to publicly criticizing Brexit. Still, the king's soft power has its limits, even in the Commonwealth. Britain's former colonies are increasingly chafing at the monarch's role as their head of state, and with the death of the much-admired queen, Jamaica and others are determined to throw off their links to the royal family. Nor is Charles ever likely to match the popularity of his mother at home. In a YouGov poll in early 2023, the queen, who died last September, was viewed favorably by 80% of respondents. Charles was viewed favorably by 55%, putting him behind his sister, Princess Anne, William, and his daughter-in-law, Catherine. Those numbers are well ahead of most British political leaders, and far better than they were in 1996, after Charles failed marriage to Diana, Princess of Wales. At that time, his public reputation crashed so badly that many Britons said they would prefer to see the crown skip a generation to William. Charles continues to be saddled with fallout from the palace's bitter split with Harry and his wife Meghan, which was stoked by Harry's memoir and its tell-all accounts of the family's quarreling. The revelations about the king's relationship with his second son have overshadowed what the king is trying to do in the United Kingdom, said Ed Owens, a historian who writes about relations between the monarchy and the media. The tabloid press has been preoccupied by the story of celebrity rather than the more difficult question of how the monarchy is going to evolve. Some say the rift with Harry and Meghan deprived the royal family of its last best chance to modernize its image. 
While William and Catherine remain popular, Ms. Mayer noted, they are edging into middle age, no longer progressive figures, but parents who embody tradition and conservative values. Charles has yet to make a strategic move to define his reign, royal watchers said. In his public appearances, he remains the same figure as he was as Prince of Wales, more down-to-earth than the Queen, more apt to dwell on subjects that seize his imagination, like the export of grain out of Ukraine, which dominated a visit he made last year to a charity that helps resettle Ukrainian refugees. The oath the Archbishop announced last weekend, termed the Homage of the People, grew out of an effort by the palace to make the coronation more relevant and ecumenical, no mean feat for a ceremony whose rituals go back to the crowning of King Edgar in AD 973 in the Roman city of Bath. Leaders of non-Christian faiths, like Judaism, Buddhism, and Sikhism, will present the king with items of regalia and will greet him before he leaves Westminster Abbey. The archbishop will offer a preamble that nods to other religious traditions. By encouraging the public to take part in a ritual once reserved for nobility, the palace was clearly hoping to open up the ceremony. It would also showcase the breadth of public support for Charles. But at a time when young people are tuning out of the monarchy, expecting them to swear an oath to a king seems out of touch. There's an appetite for change, Ms. Mayer said, and they're still trying to do business as usual. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Outside Hollywood Studios, Writers Make Their Case by Brooks Barnes and Nicole Sperling Alan Stutzman, a senior Writers Guild of America official, stood on a battered patch of grass outside Netflix headquarters in Los Angeles. She was calm, remarkably so, given the wild scene unfolding around her and the role she had played in its creation. Hey, Netflix, you're no good. Pay your writers like you should. Hundreds of striking movie and television writers shouted in unison as they marched outside the Netflix complex. The spectacle had snarled traffic on Sunset Boulevard on Tuesday afternoon, and numerous drivers blared horns in support of a strike. Undulating picket signs, a few of which were covered with expletives, added to the sense of chaos, as did a hovering news helicopter and a barking dog. Wow, a Netflix employee said as he inched his car out of the company's driveway which was blocked by writers. In February, unions representing 11,500 screenwriters selected Ms. Stutzman, 40, to be their chief negotiator in talks with studios and streaming services for a new contract. Negotiations broke off on Monday night, shortly before the contract expired. Ms. Stutzman and other union officials voted unanimously to call a strike, shattering 15 years of labor peace in Hollywood and bringing the entertainment industry's creative assembly lines to a grinding halt. We told them there was a ton of pent-up anger, said Ms. Stutzman, referring to the companies at the bargaining table, which included Amazon and Apple. They didn't seem to believe us. The throng started a new chant as if on cue. Hey ho! Hey ho! This corporate greed has got to go! Similar scenes of solidarity unfolded across the entertainment capital. At Paramount Pictures, more than 400 writers and a few supportive actors, including Rob Lowe, assembled to wave pickets with slogans like Despicable You and Honk If You Like Words. Screenwriting titans like Damon Lindelof and Jenny Lumet marched outside Amazon Studios. Acrimony hung in the air outside Walt Disney Studios, where one writer played drums on empty buckets next to a sign that read, What we are asking for is a drop in the bucket. Another sign goaded Mickey Mouse directly, I smell a rat. But the strike, at least in its opening hours, 
seemed to burn hottest at Netflix, with some writers describing the company as the scene of the crime. That is because Netflix popularized, and in some cases pioneered, streaming era practices that writers say have made their profession an unsustainable one. A job that has always been unstable, dependent on audience tastes, and the whims of revolving sets of network executives has become much more so. The streaming giant, for instance, has become known for mini-rooms, which is slang for hiring small groups of writers to map out a season before any official green light has been given. Because it isn't a formal writer's room, the pay is less. Writers in mini-rooms will sometimes work for as little as 10 weeks, and then have to scramble to find another job. If a show is greenlit and goes into production, fewer writers are kept on board. If you only get a 10-week job, which a lot of people do, you really have to start looking for a new job on day one, said Alex Levy, who has written for Netflix shows like Grace and Frankie. In my case, I haven't been able to get a writing job for months. I've had to borrow money from my family to pay my rent. Lawrence Day, whose credits include The Late Late Show with James Corden and American Born Chinese, a Disney Plus series, echoed Ms. Levy's frustration. It feels like an existential moment because it's becoming impossible to build a career, he said. The dream is dead. Studio executives have largely maintained public silence, instead leaving communication to the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which bargains on their behalf. In statements, the organization has said its goal was a mutually beneficial deal, which was, quote, only possible if the Guild is committed to turning its focus to serious bargaining and searching for reasonable compromises. On Monday, when talks broke down, the organization said the companies had made an offer that included generous increases in compensation for writers. The primary sticking points, it added, were union proposals that would require companies to staff television shows with a certain number of writers for a specified period of time, whether needed or not. Samantha Riley, whose credits include Hacks and Fresh Off the Boat, started to breathe fire on the Netflix picket line when the conversation turned to the offer made by the companies. The union made the proposals public. I'm offended by the offer, Ms. Riley said. It's horrendous. In particular, writers were irate about the manner in which the studios responded to their concerns about the impact of artificial intelligence on the future of screenwriting. The WGA wants studios to agree to protections that guarantee AI will not encroach on writers' credits and compensation. The studios rejected the proposal, instead suggesting an annual meeting on advances in technology. Radicalized might be too strong of a word, but the studios, by doing that, made people even more unified, said Tom Zent-Georgi, whose credits range from The Mentalist to NYPD Blue. First day enthusiasm notwithstanding, Writers will find it no small task in coming weeks to block a production apparatus that, in the Los Angeles area alone, is spread across more than 100 studio facilities, several hundred post-production houses, and numerous location shoots that move from day to day. Hollywood's most recent strike, in 2007, stretched for more than three months. The 2007 strike was in winter, when daytime temperatures in Los Angeles are in the 60s. The upcoming summer in Burbank, however, means 100-degree days, day after day. Irene Turner, a veteran of the 2007 strike, was a bit weary after three hours of trudging in the sun outside Disney on Tuesday, but she was nowhere close to calling it quits. This is super good for me because I sit on my butt on a laptop, she said. Ms. Turner, whose credits include the 2017 Netflix film The Most Hated Woman in America, called the strike necessary and miserable, adding that a lot of people will get hurt. 
The 2007 strike cost the Los Angeles economy an estimated $2.1 billion, with small businesses supporting television and film production also crunched. Kevin Yee, an actor in Dickinson turned screenwriter, who was pumping his sign up and down furiously outside Warner Brothers, said he was nervous about how long a strike could last. It felt like the producers wanted us to strike, Mr. Yee said. They've stopped greenlighting a lot of things in anticipation of this, so there wasn't a lot for me to do anyway. With the current state of things, there is no hope for this industry unless they step up and make this a sustainable career. So to me, I have nothing to lose. Judge dismisses Trump's lawsuit against the New York Times by Liam Stack. A New York judge dismissed former President Donald J. Trump's lawsuit against the New York Times on Wednesday, saying the newspaper's Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation into his finances was clearly protected by the First Amendment. When Mr. Trump filed the lawsuit in 2021, he accused the paper and three of its reporters of conspiring in a, quote, insidious plot with his estranged niece, Marielle Trump, to improperly obtain his confidential tax records for a series of stories published in 2018. In a ruling filed on Wednesday afternoon, Justice Robert R. Reed of the state Supreme Court in Manhattan wrote that Mr. Trump's claims against the Times and its reporters fail as a matter of constitutional law. Courts have long recognized that reporters are entitled to engage in legal and ordinary news-gathering activities without fear of tort liability, as these actions are at the very core of protected First Amendment activity, Justice Reed wrote. The judge also ordered Mr. Trump to pay legal expenses and associated costs for The Times and its reporters, Suzanne Craig, David Barstow, and Russ Butner. The New York Times is pleased with the judge's decision today, said Charlie Stadlander, a spokesman for the company. It is an important precedent reaffirming that the press is protected when it engages in routine news gathering to obtain information of vital importance to the public. In a statement, Mr. Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, said, We will weigh our client's options and continue to vigorously fight on his behalf, though she did not specifically address whether Mr. Trump's lawyers would appeal the ruling. The Times reporters, quote, went well beyond the conventional news gathering techniques permitted by the First Amendment, she said, adding, all journalists must be held accountable when they commit civil wrongs. While the ruling shot down the lawsuit brought by Mr. Trump, he is still ensnared in several legal matters in which he is the defendant. The former president was indicted in New York in March for his role in paying hush money to a porn star to conceal her story of a sexual encounter with him. He is the first former or sitting president in history to face criminal charges, and he also faces investigations in Georgia and Washington. Mr. Trump's taxes became a matter of public concern after he failed to publicly release his tax returns during the 2016 presidential campaign. Presidential candidates had routinely released their returns for at least four decades, but Mr. Trump declined, citing an ongoing audit. That secrecy led to criticism that lasted throughout his presidency and to questions about his financial holdings. The documents obtained by the Times were the basis of a series of articles that documented what the newspaper described as Mr. Trump's history of tax avoidance and, quote, outright fraud. The series was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Explanatory Reporting in 2019. The investigation also cast doubt on the former president's claims to be a self-made billionaire. Instead, it found that he had inherited the equivalent of at least $413 million from his father, a real estate developer, much of it through, quote, dubious tax schemes. 
Mr. Trump has frequently threatened to sue news media organizations during his long career in public life, and has unsuccessfully sued the Times in the past. In 2020, Mr. Trump's re-election campaign sued the Times for libel after the opinion section, which operates independently from the newsroom, published a guest essay entitled The Real Trump-Russia Quid Pro Quo. That lawsuit was dismissed in 2021. FTC seeks blanket ban on Meta's use of young users' data. By Natasha Singer. The Federal Trade Commission escalated its fight with the tech industry's biggest companies on Wednesday as it moved to impose what it called a blanket prohibition on the collection of young people's personal data by Meta, Facebook's parent company. The commission wants to significantly expand a record $5 billion consent order with the company from 2020 and said that Meta had failed to fully meet the legal commitments it made to overhaul its privacy practices to better protect its users. Regulators also said Meta had misled parents about their ability to control whom their children communicated with on its Messenger Kids app, and misrepresented the access it gave some app developers to users' private data. The proposed changes mark the third time the agency has taken action against the social media giant over privacy issues. The company's recklessness has put young users at risk, said Samuel Levine, the director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Production. Facebook needs to answer for its failures. The FTC's administrative action, an internal agency procedure called an order to show cause, serves as a preliminary warning to Meta that regulators believe the company violated the 2020 privacy agreement. The document lays out the commission's accusations against Meta, as well as its proposed restrictions. Meta, which has 30 days to challenge the filing, was not given advance notice of the action by the FTC. After Facebook responds, the commission said it will consider the company's arguments and make a decision. Meta could then appeal the agency's decision in a federal court of appeals. The FTC's proposed changes would bar Meta from profiting from the data it collects from users under the age of 18, and would apply to Meta businesses including Facebook, Instagram, and Horizon Worlds, the company's new virtual reality platform. Regulators want to bar the company from monetizing on that data even after those users turn 18. That means Meta could be prohibited from using details about young people's activities to show them ads based on their behavior or market digital items to them, like virtual clothes, for their avatars. Whether a court would approve such changes is unknown. In a statement on Wednesday, Alvaro M. Bedoya, a commissioner who voted to issue the administrative order, said he had concerns about whether the agency's proposal to restrict Meta's use of young people's data was sufficiently relevant to the original case. In a statement, Meta called the FTC's administrative warning a political stunt and said the company had introduced an industry-leading privacy program under the agreement with the FTC. The company vowed to fight the agency's action. Despite three years of continual engagement with the FTC around our agreement, they provided no opportunity to discuss this new, totally unprecedented theory, Meta said in a statement. Meta had already announced limits on targeting ads to users under 18. In 2021, the company said advertisers would be able to customize ads based on minors' locations, ages, and genders, but would no longer be able to target ads based on young people's interests or activities on other websites. And this year, Meta said it would also stop ad targeting based on minors' gender. The FTC's aggressive action is the first time that the commission has proposed such a blanket ban on the use of data to try to protect the online privacy of minors. 
and it arrives amid the most sweeping government drive to insulate young Americans online since the 1990s, when the commercial internet was still in its infancy. Fueled by mounting concerns about depression among children and the role that online experiences could play in exacerbating it, lawmakers in at least two dozen states over the past year have introduced bills that would require certain sites, like social networks, to bar or limit young people on their platforms. Regulators are also intensifying their efforts, imposing fines on online services whose use or misuse of data could expose children to risks. Over the past few years, critics have faulted Meta for recommending content on self-harm and extreme dieting to teenage girls on Instagram, as well as failing to sufficiently protect young users from child sexual exploitation. The FTC's case against the social media giant dates back more than a decade. In 2011, the agency accused Facebook of deceiving users on privacy. In a settlement, Facebook agreed to implement a comprehensive privacy program, including agreeing not to misrepresent its privacy practices. But after news reports in 2018 that a voter profiling company, Cambridge Analytica, had harvested the data of millions of Facebook users without their knowledge, the FTC cracked down again. In a consent order finalized in 2020, Facebook agreed to restructure its privacy procedures and practices and allow an independent assessor to examine the effectiveness of the company's privacy program. The company also paid a record $5 billion fine to settle the agency's charges. The FTC says Facebook has violated that agreement. In its administrative order on Wednesday, the agency cited reports from the privacy assessor, noting it had found, quote, gaps and weaknesses in Meta's privacy program that required substantial additional work. Although much of the report was redacted, it indicated that the assessor found issues with the way Meta assessed privacy risks to users' data and managed privacy incidents. It also cited Meta's oversight of its data-sharing arrangements with third parties. The FTC's crackdown on Meta is the latest signal that the agency is following through on pledges by Lena M. Khan, its chair, to rein in the power of the tech industry's dominant companies. In December, the agency moved to halt consolidation among video game makers when it filed a lawsuit to try and block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard, the company behind the popular Call of Duty franchise. The FTC has also become more aggressive about privacy regulation. Rather than simply trying to protect consumers from increasingly powerful surveillance tools, regulators are working to prohibit certain kinds of data collection and usages that they consider high risk. The FTC in December accused Epic Games, the company behind the popular Fortnite game, of illegally collecting children's data and putting them at risk by matching them with strangers and enabling live chat. Epic agreed to pay a $520 million fine to settle those and other charges. The settlement order also required Epic to turn off live voice and text chat by default, the first time regulators had imposed such a remedy. But the data restrictions the agency now wants to impose on Meta go much further. The FTC's proposed changes would bar Meta-owned sites and platforms from monetizing young people's data. That would allow company platforms like Horizon Worlds to collect and use miners' information only to provide services to users and for security purposes. The FTC also wants to bar Meta from releasing any new products or features until the company can demonstrate, through written confirmation from an independent privacy assessor, that its privacy program fully complies with the 2020 consent order. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. 
Kate Bush, Missy Elliott, and Willie Nelson voted into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Joe Coscarelli. The reclusive but freshly relevant experimental pop singer Kate Bush, the one-of-one rapper Missy Elliott, and the 90-year-old country stalwart Willie Nelson are among this year's genre-spanning inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The organization behind the museum and annual ceremony announced the lineup on Wednesday, underlining how the new class reflected the diverse artists and sounds that define rock and roll. Rounding out the seven acts voted in by more than 1,000 artists, historians, and musical industry professionals are the pop singer George Michael, who died in 2016, the 1970s soul group The Spinners, who had been nominated three times prior, the platinum-selling 1990s pop rock singer Sheryl Crow, and the politically rambunctious rap rock band Rage Against the Machine, who crossed the threshold after its fifth time on the ballot. The Rock Hall ceremony will be held on Friday, November 3rd at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Furthering a pattern that has taken shape in recent years, following steady criticism against the Rock Hall for its lack of inclusion, especially among race and gender lines, none of the musicians inducted this time fit neatly into the most narrow strictures of what constitutes rock. But as the genre and the institution continue to evolve, those behind the scenes have proved increasingly welcome to honoring rappers, pop singers, and country artists like Dolly Parton, who attempted to remove herself from consideration last year but was voted in anyway. In a statement accompanying the induction announcement on Wednesday, John Sykes, the chairman of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation, said, We are honored that this November's induction ceremony in New York will coincide with two milestones in music culture the 90th birthday of Willie Nelson, and the 50th anniversary of the birth of hip-hop. Nelson, who celebrated his birthday over the weekend with a concert featuring Neil Young, Miranda Lambert, and Snoop Dogg, had been eligible for the Rock Hall since 1987, 25 years after the release of his first commercial recording, and six years before he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Like George Michael, best known for hits like Faith and Freedom, 90, this was Nelson's first time on the ballot. Bush, who has not released an album in more than a decade, had been nominated three times prior, but she may have received a boost thanks to renewed interest in her music since last year, when a placement in the Netflix show Stranger Things sent her 1985 single Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, back into pop radio and to a new peak of number three on the Billboard Hot 100. Missy Elliott will become the first woman in rap to be included in the Rock Hall, following previous recognition for artists like Run DMC, Beastie Boys, NWA, Public Enemy, and Jay-Z. I want to say this is huge, not just for me, but all my sisters in hip-hop, she wrote in a string of tweets on Wednesday. This door is now open to showcase the hard work and what many of us contribute to music. I have cried all morning because I am grateful. Voters passed over more traditional rock bands in the latest ballot, like Soundgarden, The White Stripes, Iron Maiden, and Joy Division, as well as the singer-songwriters Warren Zevon and Cyndi Lauper. The rap group A Tribe Called Quest also failed to make the cut. Yet outside of those inducted as performers, the ceremony this fall will also celebrate the hip-hop pioneer DJ Cool Herc and the guitarist Link Ray, awarded for musical influence. The singer Shaka Khan, the composer and producer Al Cooper, and the songwriter Bernie Taupin for musical excellence, as well as the Soul Train creator, producer, and host Don Cornelius, posthumously receiving the Amit Ertgen Award for Executives.
Critic's Notebook, Adapt or Perish, by James Ponowozik. In a 2021 episode of What We Do in the Shadows, the ancient vampire Nandor goes to Atlantic City and is smitten with a slot machine themed on the Big Bang Theory. Later, he's amazed to discover that the Big Bang Theory is also a TV show. Very faithful to the slot machine, he marvels. There is not yet a series based on a slot machine that I know of, but Nandor is onto something. TV today is full of things based on other things. Films have become TV series, including Shadows, an adaptation of a 2015 movie, as have books and superhero comics and podcasts and manga and video games. Nandor is onto something else, too. Faithfulness has become a watchword for adaptations, sometimes a measure of authenticity, sometimes a billy club, to police divergences from a favorite story. It's a term that raises a lot of unanswered questions. Faithful to what? Or whom? Do fans of the original work have more of a claim on the adaptation than everyone else? Can you be faithful and creative at the same time? And do people asking for faithfulness even want that? Or do they simply want obedience? In its recent rebranding presentation, Max, the streaming service now known as HBO Max, which downsizes its name later this month, announced a slate of programming of things based on other things. Along with a new Game of Thrones prequel adapted from novellas by George R. R. Martin, a series version of the horror movie The Conjuring, and a Big Bang Theory spin-off, congrats Nandor, Max confirmed plans for a series repurposing one of Warner Brothers Discovery's most valuable properties, the Harry Potter books. Much of the response focused, understandably, on the news that J.K. Rowling would produce the adaptation despite the controversy, even among many Potter fans, over her criticism of, quote, the new trans activism. But another curiosity in Max's attempt to squeeze more blood from the Sorcerer's Stone was its description of the series as, quote, a faithful adaptation. Faithful compared to what? The books have already been adapted into eight films, whose adherence to the plots was as tightly monitored as the prison at Azkaban. But with a limited runtime and no access to Hermione Granger's Time Turner, they had to make cuts. A series with a planned decade-long run, and each season based on one book, would have the space, in the words of Casey Bloys, the chairman of HBO, to deep dive. In other words, to cram in everything on superfans' what-the-movies-left-out lists. More faithful here means more exhaustive, more committed to reproducing, at a healthy budget, the images already inside the reader's head. And here's the problem with faith. The aesthetic version, like the religious one, can lead you to higher insight and inspiration, or it can shackle you to the unforgiving, literal interpretation of a text. Adaptations are a devil's bargain. They are made for a reason, to gain the advantages of brand recognition and a pre-existing audience. But that comes with the burden of expectations. Fans of the original checking it against the source. Some looking for a fresh take, others looking for a completest video illustration. Or worse, they use faithfulness as a cover for small-mindedness. See the Lord of the Rings fans who objected to casting people of color to populate Middle-earth. Or the Last of Us devotees who knocked the HBO video game adaptation for expanding the story of two gay characters to a full episode, supposedly on the grounds that wasn't in the game. For a TV critic, the era of adaptations means every review involves new decisions and more supplementary material. Should you read the book, see the movie, play the game? Or should you go in cold to better represent the many viewers 
who will come to the material the same way. I've done both, but you can never do both at the same time. Once I had read the books that Game of Thrones is based on, I couldn't unread them. But this is not your problem. The issue for viewers is that there are more and more series out there serving two audiences, the fans of the original work and the ones coming to the story new. Here, I'm on the side of the newbies. Good TV can be challenging, but it should never be homework. If you need to have read or seen or heard a prior work to appreciate your show, you've made a bad show. The duties of reproduction, to realize something that someone has already created, can be at odds with the duties of art, to create what never was. True creativity requires not blind faith, but a little treachery. The best TV adaptations use the distinctly serial and visual medium to recreate the emotion and spirit of the source, whittling away whatever doesn't translate. HBO's My Brilliant Friend hues reasonably close to Elena Ferrante's plots, but it works as TV because it's artfully directed and, mirac- and miraculously cast, using image and the nuance of expression to convey the inner lives of its characters without drowning in exposition or voiceover. Daisy Jones and the Six, the series-length rock by Fopic on Amazon Prime Video, had an open opportunity to rethink its source material. The novel by Taylor Jenkins Reid told the story of a fictional Fleetwood Mac-like supergroup in oral history form, a device that worked on the page but required rethinking for the screen. As Eleanor Henderson wrote in her review of the novel for The Times, the script format inherently limits our access to the characters' innermost selves. Unfortunately, the adaptation by Scott Neustadler and Michael H. Weber fills the gaps with mush. The series devotes a lot of energy to staging key performances and musical moments from the novel, which necessarily left much to the reader's imagination. But the fleshed-out personal dramas and artistic struggles pile on the rock-and-roll period clichés. The result may be a faithful enough audio companion to the novel. As standalone TV, it plays like a ham-handed This Is Us flashback. If Daisy Jones ends up a listless cover band, Prime Video's Dead Ringers is a brilliantly reckless experiment. Its genetic material is the 1988 David Cronenberg body horror movie, itself based loosely on a novel, which itself echoed a true story, about the descent into madness of a pair of twin gynecologists, both played in the film by Jeremy Irons. The six-episode TV series reimagines its twin leads, the idealistic obstetrician Beverly Mantle and the ambitious biomedical researcher Elliot Mantle, each so clearly delineated by Rachel Wise that you might forget there's only one of her. Gender-flipping the leads reframes the original film's ideas about the bloody machinery of childbirth, rooting the story in women's reality rather than abstract horror. But the series does so much more. It's a caustic, absurd comedy, a psychological drama of sibling dependence and a wry take on venture capital machine and privilege. The sisters court an amoral opioid heiress, played by Jennifer Ely. Wise and the writer Alice Birch have created a wondrous monster that firmly answers the questions too many adaptations fumble with. Why bother, and why now? I can't say the same for Paramount Plus's revamp of the 1987 erotic thriller Fatal Attraction, with Lizzie Kaplan and Joshua Jackson as the principals in an affair that goes criminally wrong. It has good intentions in its update, with Kaplan expanding on the problematic, bunny-boiling obsessive played by Glenn Close, 
but it ends up a tedious, mopey echo of upscale marital dramas like The Affair, which Jackson also appeared in, while being too constrained by the parameters of the original story to go anywhere worthwhile. It's fitting, I guess, that a drama about infidelity should fall into the faithfulness trap. In the end, adaptation isn't a marriage. At best, it's an open relationship. Faithfulness is a great quality in real life, but when it comes to fiction, betrayal inevitably makes a better story. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 4th, 2023 edition of the New York Times. Your reader's been Jeremy Morlock. Thanks for listening.